0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at ISLC.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Nargis Flores and Dr. Steven Leo.
1: Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the ISLC. In this episode, we'll recap the 2023 World Conference on Lung Cancer. This was held September 9th to 12th in Singapore. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University.
0: and Dr. Nargis Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. We have spent the past few days in Singapore hearing about the latest results of important clinical trials learning from lung cancer experts from all around the world, connecting with all of our ISLC friends and making new ones along the way.
1: While we're still digesting some of this new data and how it will impact our patients' care, we wanted to talk about some of the highlights of this meeting and get some initial impressions. To help us, we are joined by two thoracic oncology experts. From the National Cancer Center Singapore, where she is a consultant thoracic oncologist, we have Dr. Stephanie Saw.
2: Hi, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be
0: here today. And from the University of Geneva, where he is a professor in chief of oncology, Dr. Alfredo Adeo.
3: Hi. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me.
1: Let's start with one of the abstracts from the presidential plenary session. Dr. Eric Lim presented the results from the MARS-2 trial, long awaited. Alfredo, can you summarize that study for our listeners?
3: Sure. Absolutely. It was a very interesting study. It was a multicenter randomized trial comparing the standard pleurectomy decortication versus no radical surgery for mesothelioma. The primary endpoint was overall survival. It was powered to detect a 30% improvement in the survival. A value that was determined by a patient panel was significant. Included a patient deemed surgically resectable and the patient received two cycles of chemotherapy then had a restaging scan. If still resectable, they were randomized to surgery then adjuvant chemotherapy treatment for four cycles or just four more cycles of chemotherapy treatment. The final overall survival uh, show another ratio of one point twenty eight, showing basically no benefit. Um, borderline, to be honest, detrimental uh, for surgery. Um, in epithelioid or non-epithelioid, there was no difference. Honestly, there was uh, no benefit of surgery. With another ratio for the epithelioid of one point twelve, for non-epithelioid, the other ratio was two point sixty six. So the conclusion, uh, from Professor Lim, was that surgery had a higher risk of death more serious complication, poorer quality of life and a higher cost compared to those randomized chemotherapy alone. So my personal take is this is practically changing, meaning that I don't think there's any more room for surgery in this setting uh, or at least not in the standard setting, maybe in a trial. And I think it was a very important study and a landmark and I think we should upload the UK for
1: running such a complicated study. I think the fact that this came from a surgeon um, and you know, the way that, that Professor Lim phrased it toward the end, you know, said this can be hard for me as a surgeon, but to paraphrase his, his statement there, you know, he said he was not there to defend his specialty. He was there for the patients and, and Alfreda, you were there. The the room really was, was pretty electric.
3: Yeah, no, I I totally agree, and I really appreciate the comment also that he made. If you want to improve survival, then stop offering this surgery, basically. So,
1: and I think this is you know one of the real benefits of coming to a meeting like this in person, to sort of be in the room, and sort of uh, hear the, the room erupt in applause and an outcome that I don't know if many of us were expecting this. Now, I know that it's not uh, a, a perfect study, and, and there were some uh, you know points that some caveats about staging about uh, technique, things of, of this nature. But I gotta say that the quality control in this trial was really good. This was a well-run study that delivered really important results. And you know, the way I look at this, it's, it's how do we even get this far? I think that a big lesson from a study like MARS-2 is, you know, we have to challenge dogma. We can't just do things because it's the way we've always done them. Um, and you know, I think you said that if you saw someone with mesothelioma in your clinic tomorrow, uh, is, is surgery something you put on the table or, or offer? I would not. Um, to be
3: honest, I was very pleased to uh, see that my idea was sort of right, because since the beginning, I thought that there was no necessarily um, a benefit of offering surgery in general. To be honest, I wasn't expecting a kind of a detrimental effect. Maybe I was expecting a difference. And that probably would have kind of left still room to offer perhaps in selected cases but now that we have seen that there's a potential detrimental effects i struggle to imagine that anybody wants to offer that anymore
0: as we continue to discuss the study we'd love to hear your input stephanie and one of my questions is how you think this is going to be adapted globally because we have different practices and different challenges what are your thoughts on that
2: Yeah, no, thank you for that question. So I do think it's very important to educate physicians as well as patients about um, these types of well-conducted trials. Um, especially, you know, as Stephen mentioned, we really want to challenge dogma. Sometimes it's very difficult for people to change practice, especially when they've been doing this for decades, not just a few years. So, you know, I do think it's important to underscore the importance of both patient as well as physician education. Um, in that, um, vein, I think patient empowerment is important. So it's good that we present data in, Um, communication forms that patients can understand. And this also helps them to make informed decisions uh, when we present the different treatment options to them.
0: And I have another question for you, Alfredo. One of the points that the discussion was making is about volume. It is a rare disease, mesothelioma. Do you think the adoption will change based on high volume centers and low volume centers? Do you think one or the other will be most likely to adapt this new data
3: um uh, it's a great question i personally am still struggling to understand what was um the concept of high volume because the this the trial um, was designed in center that i would consider high volume center in uk so um and there were five center performing surgery and there were the, the you know the surgeon were were very well trained and they train other surgeons so I struggle to imagine that high-volume centers in the states might get different results. And if so, I would even um, be, be more provocative and say, if you really believe you could do better, then you should run a trial to prove it rather than offering uh, of, of trial.
0: Thank you for your input. Also in the presidential plenary was Dr. Jani presenting the results from FLORA2. Stephanie, can you summarize for us the results of that study?
2: Sure. So FLOR2 was a phase 3 randomized study, including patients with non-squamous EGFR-mutated lung cancer patients. Notably, they included patients only with sensitizing exon-19 um, deletions or L858R, and they also allowed stable uh, stable untreated brain metastases. So they randomized patients to osimertinib alone or osimertinib in combination with platinum and pemetrexed chemotherapy, followed by pemetrexate and osimertinib maintenance. So this was a positive study in favor of osimertinib plus chemotherapy, um, translating to an improvement in progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.62, uh, with a median PFS of 25.5 months um, in the chemotherapy-containing arm versus 16.7 months in the osimertinib monotherapy arm. The overall response rate was pretty similar at 76% in osmatin monotherapy and 83% in the chemotherapy-containing arm, Uh, but notably the median duration of response was longer in the combination arm at 24 months versus about 15 months. When they um, looked at the data analysed by the Blinded um, Independent Committee review, the results were fairly similar, um, same hazard ratio at 0.62. Uh, but numerically, um, the progression-free survival was even longer at 29.4 months versus 19.9 months. Now looking at um, the subgroup analysis, so all the pre-specified subgroups actually did better with osimertinib and chemotherapy, notably including L858R with a hazard ratio of 0.63. That was pretty similar to exon-19 with a hazard ratio of 0.6. We also looked at patients with and without CNS metastases. Um, Again, notably, the patients with CNS metastases had a better hazard hazard ratio of 0.47 versus 0.75 and those without CNS metastases. With the caveat that the data was only 27% mature, um, at the data cutoff, there was not yet an OS benefit uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.9. Importantly, when we look at combination treatment, uh, one of the important considerations is about toxicity. Um, and expectedly, the combination arm with chemotherapy had a higher incidence of treatment-related toxicity, with a grade 3 and above adverse event rate of 64% versus 27% in the osomatinate monotherapy arm, notably with more nausea, anemia, neutropenia, as well as thrombocytopenia. However, the investigators did observe that there was, simi- there was a similar ILD rate in both arms at about three to four percent. So, in summary, I do think that you know this was an important trial that had to be done, that showed us. Um, besides osmertinib mototherapy, whether there was anything else that we could give in the first line that could potentially benefit more patients. But I I do think that a lot of us um, remain concerned about whether osmertinib plus chemotherapy is necessarily needed for all patients. Um, I think we do recognize that in Real-world clinical practice. There are a lot of patients who do very well on osmertinib monotherapy, and not all patients would be willing to come for three weekly intravenous chemotherapy, especially when there's a pretty high incidence of grade three and above toxicities, particularly hematological. So I think when we bring this data back um, to the clinic, you know, it would really have to be a shared discussion with the patients about who we would recommend it for. And personally, probably in my own clinical practice, I would favor this for maybe those with CNS metastases, as well as L858R, because I do think that these are patient populations for which there is an unmet need, and maybe, you know, combination therapy would benefit them the most.
0: On the other side, for which patients you won't recommend these triple now chemotherapy regimen?
2: Yeah, so I think that's a great question. Again, I, I do think it would be best to answer these in the context of prospective clinical trials. But, you know, based on the data that we have, I think patients with perhaps exon-19 who don't have CNS metastases, who do not have a high disease burden, uh, maybe um, I would also put out there the absence of TP53 core mutations. You know, these are poor, known poor prognostic biomarkers. I think these patients might do very well with um, TKI monotherapy. So I might be less
0: enthusiastic, about, you know, giving chemotherapy to them up front. Another question that comes when we see flora too is the duration of the pemetrexate maintenance. At the data cutoff, 25% of the patients remain in pemetrexate. How hard will you push to keep these patients in pemetrexate? And do you think there is a role for these pemetrexate maintenance?
2: Yeah, so I think that's a great question. So I think while this trial actually mandated uh, Pemetrexate Plus or nip maintenance, I think, you know, even in the real world, we do recognize that um, Pemetrexate does have cumulative toxicity, you know, besides suppression, I think renal function is the other thing that is uh, very relevant. Um, and I do think that these are things to be mindful of when we try and introduce more therapies in the earlier stage setting. Um, I would like to see more data on whether there is an option of dropping pemetrexate maintenance um, in the context of maybe patients who have done well with induction, doublet chemotherapy, but I do think we need to let the data speak for
0: itself. Another question related to that, as you mentioned, we don't have overall survival data yet, and we don't have progression-free survival 2 data yet to show if the concurrent versus sequential is better. Should we wait until all that data is matured to adopt Flora 2, or should we select the patients that we consider high risk?
2: Yeah, so again, I think the challenge with all the, um, all these clinical trial data coming out so quickly is that we really have to balance what we're going to do in the day-to-day clinical practice and how we counsel patients on it. So again, I do think that there will be a lot more enthusiasm about adopting Flora 2 if we had a very good signal for OS benefit. But having said that, if we weren't to wait for um, you know all this FIBL data to be out before we change practice, we could potentially be compromising some of the patient's outcomes, um, especially for those who may benefit from an upfront combination. So again, I do want to underscore that I think it is shared decision-making and we probably do have to um, exhibit some um, degree of clinical judgment on who you think are the patients who uh, would benefit most from combination treatment upfront and may not have that opportunity to wait um, until they progress before we add chemo.
1: I think that you mentioned this a little bit. Um, the The change in lifestyle is, is really quite dramatic. And when patients are diagnosed with an EGFR mutant lung cancer and receive medicine like osimertinib or a third gen EGFR TKI, responses are, are quick, they're deep, they can be very durable for some patients, and really they can resume their, their life pre-diagnosis for, for, for the most part. And um, with chemotherapy, it's a bit different. And even if it is... "Quote unquote tolerable, manageable." These sort of subjective terms that we throw around on the podium. You know, this is now an infusion you're getting every three weeks. This is now, uh, you know, something you have to schedule your your life around and all this inconvenience. And I think that's really hard to to, to quantify and to capture, Alfredo. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, but I just want to be the
3: uh, devil's advocate here and say true. But on the other hand, we know that 30% of the patient in the flora study did not get any second line, so. We we definitely need to capture who those patients are going to be, so it's very difficult. And I agree, in this is not practice changing for me, but we definitely need to. I think it's reasonable to offer to some of the patients. We need to wait for the full publication. I guess we might have more data to identify. Tamsu group, maybe, commutation, as you mentioned, or I don't think it's just the brain metastasis, more perhaps, you know, high-volume disease. Those are the patients where I would be inclined to discuss upfront treatment. And I think we are moving towards, again, offering, even in EGFR, different type of treatment, not just emergency, but emergency plus chemo, and maybe it's going to be, you know, we're going to see the data of Mariposa and others. We might also offer something else to our patients. So it's, anyway, good data, not practice changing. But I think something you know to consider in the future as soon as we have you know good data and and some more data.
1: Hey, you mentioned biomarkers; maybe that can help us, you know, m- deliver this where it's most needed. commutations, CT ctDNA—we expect all these, hopefully, eventually to to be read out. But I picked up on something you both mentioned when you're talking about Flora 2, and it really is discussing, not necessarily recommending or insisting anything like that. It really, is an open discussion because uh, we we appreciate that. The values and, and whether this is really worth the benefit you see is going to be very individual. You know, staying on the theme of, of targeted medicine, Stephanie, we saw some updates in a different target, and that's Ross One Fusions. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the Trident study uh, that was provided by Dr. Uh, Byung Chol Cho from Yonsei University?
2: Yep. So Trident 1 is a phase 1-2 trial of Repotrectinib and ROS1 and NTRAC fusion positive cancers. There were multiple cohorts. Uh, the two cohorts that were presented recently were the ROS1 TKI naive subset, um, as well as those who had one line of TKI but no chemotherapy. So there were some differences in the um, different cohorts. So in TKI, TKI Naive, the objective response rate was 79%. In those who were treated at the randomized phase 2 dose, um, their objective response rate was 78% with an impressive uh, median duration of response of 34 months, median PFS of 35.7 months, and the median overall survival was not reached. In the post-TKI chemo naive cohort, um, the objective response rate was more modest at 38%, median duration of response of 14.8 months, PFS of 9 months, and median overall survival of 25.1 months. Again, um, impressively, the intracranial ORR was 89% in the treatment naive, uh, versus 38% in the post-TKI, um, cohort. Um, and also among those with the G2032R, um, mutation, the uh, objective response rate was 59%. So again, um, this trial also talked about some of the treatment-related adverse events. So the grade 3 and above um, incidence was about 27%, and the most common one was dizziness, um, which was interesting because this is not actually a really very common side effect that uh, we see in other types of TKIs. So again, I I think this... um, study is important to us, um, illustrating that I think the line of therapy matters when you're deciding when to use these agents. But again, you can't target these agents if you do not know that it is there. So again, I think this alludes to the importance of trying to provide NGS to patients, um, preferably um, in the treatment-naive setting. Um, I think this would really you know, help to um, Reinforce the importance of that we should be giving um, the more effective or even best drugs first um, so that, you know, this helps to reduce the chance of patients really dropping off the curve and not being able to receive uh, more effectively aligned options, especially if we did not know that um, these aberrations were actually there um, from the outset.
1: Yeah, the, the dizziness and other NTRAC mediated toxicities can, can be pretty tough, especially over time, but, um, you know, the, the incidence, fortunately, was low. They did seem to respond well to dose reductions. Uh, let me ask you this question: We know in this ROS one space we have first-line TKIs like crizotinib and trektinib approved. If this agent were approved today, where would this fit in your your treatment algorithm?
2: Yeah. So. I think another um, consideration here is um, when we think about how to sequence treatment options, we also have to think about what are our post-progression treatment options. Um, This is similar to the ELK space. So when the Crown study was first presented, I think the data for lalatinib did look very, very promising. Um, But I think a lot of physicians and even patients also had reservations about if we use lalatinib first. What what else can we do, you know, when the drug stops working? So I do think that these are not easy decisions um, that we have to make on a day-to-day basis. And again, I think it really all boils down to um, patient selection as well as, you know, sometimes we do have to do some cross-trial comparisons, unfortunately, about what you think are the most active agents in this space um, and also, you know, other post-progression treatments um, available to these patients? So I think what was interesting about um, reprotractinib is that it does seem to have some activity against G2032R, uh, which I think previously there at least have been reports that lolatinib may not work as well in patients with these mutations. So that is probably something that I would take into
0: consideration. Alfredo, do you have any comments about this data? No,
3: I think those are great data. And maybe the only point is, would I, if I had it, going back to your question, would I use it first line? Uh, um, I think even the activity, yeah, I would probably use it first line because one of the concerns that sometimes you do have is how about CNX activity. And I think that it's a strong case for using it and, and first line. At least this is, I would strongly consider it first line.
0: Something that is very exciting as we continue to have more and more agents, uh, even in rare mutations like ROS1. So I think the more options we have for our patients, we allow us to have auctions for them and have, again, educated discussions. Alfredo, there were some updates uh, with several of the antibody drug conjugates. ADCs are some of the trending uh, compounds in thoracic oncology. One was an EGFR mutant no small cell lung cancer with the Herthina study presented by Dr. Yu. Can you review the results of that for us?
3: Yes, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, we seen a lot of data on ADC at the conference. It was really uh, cool. And uh, the Athena study is basically data on uh, patritumab deruxican, is an anti her 2 antibody, coupled to deruximum uh, molecule. And uh, the, the dose used was 5.6 milligram per kg, uh, given every three weeks. And there, there were 225 patients. So it's kind of a big group. And the activity was measured with response rate. Um, so, the activity was, you know, I would say quite good in patients who had prior uh, third generation TKI and they also had chemotherapy response rate was pretty much, you know, close to 30%, with a disease control rate of 72.7, a median durational response of 6.4 months, and again, you know, good median progression free survival of 5.5 months, and a median overall survival of 11.9 months, so pretty, pretty much 12 months. Uh, as we've seen already before, the efficacy, you know, seems to be pretty much across uh, resistance mutation and across uh, two expressions. So we don't have a biomarker, basically, to guide our choice. And um, CNX activity, we have a response rate of 33%, uh, disease control rate 767 with median durational response, which, in my opinion, was quite good, 8.4 uh, months. Uh, some toxicity, I would expect, in, in the end, it's chemotherapy. So this is the classical chemotherapy side effect you would get. So you've got nausea, 66%, so with uh, 3% grade 2, though. thromocytopenia, 44%, 21%, grade 3. Neutropenia, 36% of the patient, when 19% was uh, grade 3. Um, so overall, I think data are encouraging. It's, it's a big group, and we need to bear in mind that we're talking about patients who were heavily treated. And to be honest, when I have a patient of mine, uh, with EGFR mutation who progress on nausea, who progress on chemotherapy, you know, we all know we are unfortunately in trouble. Um, there's not much that we can offer that might work. So we're very good to see, a, you know, a 80% response rate, but if we have to be realistic, I think 30% response rate, it's definitely good on a big uh, sample size. So personally, I think it's, those data are very encouraging. And again, um, maybe the downside is we don't have a biomarker. we' nice to know who to offer this to. Uh, but I think this is a common theme for ADC, or pretty much not all of them, but you know, the vast majority doesn't seem to have a specific target, but seems to be you know an effective drug. And I think something that I would personally, if I could, I would probably consider.
0: So you are mentioned the lack of biomarker, but we also know that we have seen efficacy across resistance mutations. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. Wouldn't that be a good thing that we don't have to get a biomarker to select these patients because a large proportion of patients were able to get benefit from it?
3: So, I would say that the fact that it is um, a pan-resistant type of drug is good, but on the other hand, the fact that you have a 30% response means that you have 70% of people who do not respond, they got toxicity, those drugs are, you know, it's IV drugs, the patient has come back, there's a cost for the patient, cost for society. So, I know it's it's easy to say, difficult to get, but if we can find some formal biomarker, it could be anything that would really be super helpful um, to reduce the any sort of toxicity, from financial toxicity to proper toxicity, um, to our patients.
0: If it is continues to move forward, will this be your agent of choice compared to the next line of cytotoxic therapy that has been around for quite some time?
3: So, yes, I mean, uh, it would be definitely something that I would consider if I could. Um, um, I, again, I didn't see any specific data about ILD and, you know, and then something that I'd like to maybe, uh, you know, be aware of or be, be um, yeah, mindful of because, you know, as uh, toxicity that would be concerning, but it, was, it would be certainly something I would consider for the patient, given the fact that if I don't have that and I don't have a trial, it would be taxing chemotherapy treatment, basically, which is not definitely great.
0: Thank you, Alfredo, for summarizing the study. What are your thoughts about these results?
3: I think the results are very encouraging. The sample size was big and there was activity. Um, but the only thing, of course, of concern would be the ILD, as it was reported, although it was you know, low ILD, but there is a 5% ILD toxicity with a 1% grade 3 and, unfortunately, a 1% grade 5, which is something we definitely don't want to see. So... Good data, some minor concern about ILD, which seems to be a common thing for these uh, drug, for the ADC, and that's something that we need to be aware of.
0: So as we are discussing, there is no biomarker, uh, particularly for this agent. What are your thoughts when it comes to biomarker in patient selection?
3: Now, as I said, it would be good to have some biomarker. We know that the drug seems to be effective across resistant mutation and and 3 expression. So, we don't have a specific biomarker. I think the only, perhaps, group of patients I would exclude from these are the patients who had some ILD previous to perhaps ozimertinib that we know can give 3 to 4% um, uh, you know, risk of ILD. So those are the patients I would probably exclude from IEDC.
0: Will you conclude that this data is very exciting as we're developing more lines of therapy after third-generation TKIs?
3: I definitely would conclude that those data are interesting in uh, an unmet need, because unfortunately, when we uh, have a patient who progresses on osimertinib and chemotherapy, we know we're in trouble. So having a drug that is potentially effective is certainly a bonus. Uh, it would be great if we could better select the patient, but I think it's overall good data, good news.
1: It, it does seem frustrating that there's not a biomarker because it's an antibody and logically the way that I think this works is the antibody binds to the antigen. So if you have a lot of antigen, then the drug should be more likely to work. We should be able to test for antigen. Uh, but that just doesn't seem to be the case for any of these. Is, is that frustrating, TL? It is, and uh, and to be honest, it's very frustrating
3: because we have a no biomarker, and it's the same for even you know the anti L uh, two, where we know that having an overexpression doesn't you know doesn't mean necessarily that the drug is particularly effective. So the, for trastuzumab deruxtecan, we know that it's more the mutation for no small cell lung cancer. I think it's part of it is, is the mechanism of action of the drug. So I think it's a better way to deliver the chemotherapy treatment. And um, th- there's also this effect on local effect. doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have uh, an overexpression of the receptor to be effective. So it is frustrating, but <laughs> it is what it is. And overall, the data are quite good.
0: So this question is to the two of you. Uh, many years ago, we found a way to describe immune checkpoint inhibitors to our patients with drawings, videos. Now we have ADCs. I will start with Stephanie. How do you describe a patient what an antibody drug conjugate is? Yeah.
2: Yeah, so I think that's critical, right? So getting patients to understand what are new types of treatments. So classically, we have had it targeted therapies, chemotherapy, immunotherapy. And now the ADCs kind of straddle between the two, chemotherapy and targeted therapy. So I, I like to tell patients that it is a combination of both. So there is a target. Uh, so the drug is delivered to a target on the cancer cell, but it also comes with chemotherapy. So that also helps them to understand some of the anticipated side effects, which, frankly speaking, are from the chemotherapy payload, right? Be it alopecia, low blood counts, fatigue. Um, so I think that, again, is... Um, it's good for patients so that, you know, that is encouraging to them that, hey, you know, it seems like the treatment that I'm getting is targeting my cancer cell, but that also explains why I'm getting some of the side effects that they, they tend to feel.
0: Yeah. Alfredo?
3: Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I think, first of all, we can definitely say that it's not as a target therapy and that, you know, it's a bit of a mix, as you mentioned. And, and we also need to explain that there's going to be some side effects which are you know chemotherapy side effects, so you know nausea, all these side effects you can get with, when you're on osimertinib. is um, something that unfortunate patient can get, so it's important to explain. And and also to be honest, if we don't necessarily understand uh, how the drug works completely.
1: Uh, that's another point I think
3: to share with the patient.
1: Yeah, right now being developed without a biomarker part from the EGFR mutation uh, in in that study, but I think encouraging activity. Um, uh, definitely great to have an option. We'll see what the other studies show. We actually saw a couple ADC studies, and another one where we're not using a biomarker for selection uh, is Trope Two. Stephanie, sasotuzumab govitican. This is a Trope Two antibody drug conjugate, and we saw some updates in the first line setting that were presented by Dr. Cho from Yonsei. Can you discuss that study?
2: Yes, of course. So sasetuzumab is an ADC with a TROP-2 antibody linked to an SN38 warhead. So this drug is notably already approved for both breast as well as bladder cancers. So the study that was presented at World Lung was EVOC-02. This is a multi-cohort phase 2 study of sasetuzumab Govitican given for first-line advanced lung cancer without actionable alterations. So this study had multiple cohorts. Here we discuss cohort A um, with pembrolizumab and pdl one high and cohort B with pembrolizumab and pdl one low on negative uh, patients. Um, there are other cohorts with platinum and pembrolizumab which have not yet been reported. So, in cohort A, which was the PDL1 high cohort, um, this cohort had the higher uh, response rate of 69%, a disease control rate of 86%, and the median duration of response was not yet reached at the time of data cutoff. For cohort B, the PDL1 low or negative group, the ORR was slightly more modest at 44%, uh, with a disease control rate of 78%, and similarly, the median duration of response was not yet reached. The rate of grade 3 and above AEs was about 38%, including diarrhea. Um, This was the most common with a 54% incidence overall, but only 3% were grade 3. Neutropenia was seen in 27%. um, And I think they are still um, planning to do the ongoing Phase 3 Evoke 03 trial, which is sestuzumab with or without pembrolizumab um, in the pdl one high cohort. So I think this is not a practice-changing study, but it is an interesting study. Again, um, I think ADCs are one of, um, you know, a class of drugs that we may not necessarily understand um, everything about it, but it is encouraging to see that, you know, there is an activity um, across multiple tumor types um, and also across different lines of therapy. So I think Evoke um, O2 is challenging um, the concept of whether we can introduce ADCs um, and improve the outcomes for further line, um, non-oncogene-driven lung cancers. So we see um, that these patients with high pdl one score do very well with uh, pdl one or PD-1 monotherapy. And the question is whether we can even do better. So I think this data is encouraging. Again, I think all of us are eagerly waiting for the results from the phase 3 study to see if it's practice changing. But it's a very exciting space.
1: Let's get this question. Uh, when you look at a combination of sensituzumab, govotecan, and pembrolizumab, you know, the pd one high group response rate is quite good, um, uh, very encouraging, certainly higher than what we see with PEMBRO alone. But is the right comparison there PEMBRO alone, like in Keynote 024, Keynote 042, or is the right comparator PEMBRO with chemotherapy, like Keynote 189?
2: Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And again, I think it really looks at what we are looking for. So I think if ultimately we are looking at improving survival, then we should um, – be looking at a comparator arm, which is reflective of what most of us are doing um, in the day-to-day clinic practice. Which I think, um, by and large, would be monotherapy. But on the other hand, if we're looking at other metrics like perhaps overall response rates or toxicities, then it would be more fair to compare it um, against chemotherapy rather than a monotherapy um, control arm.
1: And you know, with the the larger studies, you know. What do you think is the meaningful endpoint there when we're adding this ADC, uh, which, you know, adds a little bit of toxicity, certainly can add cost. Is the meaningful res- sort of outcome their response rate, or what are you looking at in, in the in the larger studies?
2: Yeah, so again, I think for evoke zero three specifically, um, they're looking at non oncogene driven, non small cell lung cancer with high PDL one. So I don't think um, the, probably the more clinically meaningful endpoint that we should be looking at would be survival rather than response rates, which maybe would be more appropriate for rarer um, tumor, um, rarer lung cancer subtypes. But this is quite a broad group. So I do think that survival would be probably the most appropriate endpoint.
1: Yeah, I think that I agree with you there. Response rates are, are good to see, and these response rates do seem high. So it's good to see higher response rates. But I think really what we want ADCs to do in this space is, is improve durable responses improve landmark survival. If they can somehow engage the immune system more, I think that there's a lot of potential, but I just think it's too early to see if that's the case or not. I think that's what we're all hoping for.
2: Yeah, I think in line with that, you know, this goes back to what we were discussing previously about whether we can identify a good biomarker to really um, help us select which are the patients that benefit most from these treatments, which are not necessarily the most uh, best tolerated, um, and of course, financial toxicity is one of those things. I um, mean, I think biomarker selection is increasingly important in the first line or at least earlier lines of treatment where we're trying to introduce all these um, effective agents. Hopefully, we'll see more work in this space. Um, maybe learning from other tumor types as well, how we can do biomarker selection
0: for ADCs. Um, Alfredo, would you like to add something?
3: Yeah, about the biomarker, I totally agree with you, but in immunotherapy uh, setting. I think we have the PL1, whatever, you know, whether it's a good biomarker or it's not, it's not a biomarker, but it's, it's a decent one. But there are other biomarkers that for some reason we are not at all exploring prospectively. And uh, we've been working a lot of NLR and Leapy, all the score there are, you know, they have a prognostic impact and never been validated prospectively. But I always wonder whether, in those patients where we know that the prognosis is worse, even if the PDL1 is very elevated, so whether we should perhaps, in that circumstances, push a bit more with ADC and immunotherapy. So I really want to see that by adding ADC to immunotherapy in this group that we know prognostically is not going to do very well, that maybe if there is the right subgroup where we should push and accept also more toxicity.
2: You're referring to the patients who are predicted to do poorly on yeah. immune checkpoint monotherapy, right? For example, SDK eleven, or
3: I'm referring also to the neutrophil lymphocyte ratio. There's some data. Uh, again, it's all prognostic. I won't say it's predictive because it's never been validated prospectively and correctly. But you have a high um, uh, NLR, you know that the. the, the overall survival is not going to be as good as the one with low NLR. And and you wonder whether you can uh, change that. We don't know. Um, But those are the patients where I would want to push a bit more and see. maybe those are the patients you're not not going to do well. And maybe those are the patients where you accept to add an extra toxicity by giving the ADC plus Pembroke. Just just a thought.
0: Wonderful discussion. And on top of that, Alfredo, another TROP2 ADC data Potomab, still working how to pronounce it, Datopotamab derostikan was updated in Tropion Lung 4 by Dr. Wakar. Can you review this update for us?
3: Yeah, sure. And um, uh, also, no worries, I'm also struggling to pronounce all this new ADC. So there was the Datortoponab derostecan is a Trop2 um, monoclonal antibody uh, plus the rux payload. And in the Tropion 4 is a phase 1b study that explored the combination of um, these drug with durvalumab, with or without uh, single-agent platinum chemotherapy, and they presented the data on court two, and court four. The quote two it was um, dato plus the durvalumab, so it was the doublet, and cohort four was the triplet, so it was dato, duva, and the chemotherapy, so the platinum base, uh, the platinum chemotherapy. So the response rate for the doublet was 50 percent. And uh, a small group, 14 uh, 14 patients, but it's quite interesting. And for the three drugs, the response rate was higher, 76.9%, and it was uh, seen in 13 patients. So, again, small group, but quite um, interesting data. Grade 3 adverse event was 32% in the doublet, and it was higher, as you would imagine, in the triplet was 57%. Also, some ILD toxicity was 16% for the doublet. And interesting enough, it was 7% in the triplet. Um, against stomatitis, 53% for the doublet with 11% grade 3 and 64% for the triplet with a 7% grade 3 stomatitis. So encouraging data very early. That's more about safety and some you know, activity. I think that what we're going to see is that those drugs, the ADC is going to be moved more and more first line. And I think somehow they're going to replace chemo. I'm not sure they're going to replace completely chemo or maybe just rather than having two chemotherapy drugs, we which i have one chemo drug. Uh, but I think it's uh, quite normal to try to move them in first line at some point. We're going to also see the data in second line at some point and see whether on their own, uh, they're better than the, our standard second line. But first line, we all know that on their own, they cannot beat what we have now. And it seems reasonable given the, what we said before, the fact that somehow it's just chemotherapy treatment delivered differently, um, I think it seems reasonable to try to combine it with immunotherapy. And the good message is, you know, seems like we can combine it with immunotherapy. The question is, is it just immune on its own, or should add another chemotherapy agent like uh, platinum? Um, so,
0: very interesting data. Something that gets everybody attention is that, percentage of grade 3 related adverse events and a very small sample size we're dealing with grade 3 adverse events of so 32% for the doublet and 57% for the triplet how that impacts your view into the data
3: it does impact a bit of course the it's the same with the response rate so numbers are small so we definitely need to have a larger sample size to be able to say a bit more but again also we need to be careful and we combine this drug with uh, other chemotherapy treatment because, uh, you know, in the end, as we said, a very powerful chemotherapy dose uh, or agent. Um, and I think we definitely need a, large, a larger science. But again, it's not clear in my mind whether you can really combine with chemotherapy treatment or the ADC should completely replace the chemotherapy and be combined with immuno.
0: Stephanie, we see there is difference. Now, all no averse events are the same, and we see these drugs are associated with stomatitis, which can significantly affect your patient's quality of life. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah.
2: So I really think this has got to do with overlapping toxicities when we try to combine different classes of agents. So again, I think we have to be mindful that ADCs do contain a significant amount of chemotherapy. So when we pair it with more chemotherapy, some of these side effects are likely to be augmented. Um, so while there may be a small percentage of grade 3, I, I do think that we have to be mindful that some of these side effects, including stomatitis, um, are very debilitating to patients. Um, so... You know, I think moving forward, when we try to design more trials, um, including combinations, these are just things to be mindful of, um, including trying to uh, prospectively include more of these
0: supportive drugs to um, help patients manage their toxicities. Um, Alfredo, my last question about these uh, trials, where do you see this drug moving forward?
3: Um, I'll definitely see this drug um, moving forward somehow or backwards on the second line. <laughs> so compared to what we discussed here, I definitely see, um, I, I hope I will see their kind of, you know, um, their... Role in second line and replacing uh, the taxane, and I think everybody's happy to get replaced. And, um, and hopefully in first line, we still need more data because we need to understand exactly what we can you know, combine it with. But I would say second line, hopefully, if we find the right combination even um, in first line.
1: Stephanie, there was also an ADC in small cell that was discussed. Ifanatimab directs tcan uh, Can you, you talk about that at a high level?
2: So again, I'm not sure whether I'm getting the pronunciation right. This is Iphenatimab-deruxtacan or IDXD, um, otherwise known as DS7300. So this is a B7H3ADC. So this study was conducted in patients with previously treated small cell lung cancer uh, with an impressive ORR of 52.4%, median progression-free survival of 5.6 months, median OS of 12.2 months, um, and there were about 22 patients who were previously treated. Um, so the grade 3 and above treatment-related adverse event incidence was not low. This was seen in about 36% of patients, um, of which um, nausea was the most common at 59%, um, although there was an overall low incidence of grade 3 uh, of 4.5%. The next was fatigue, uh, but all were um, grade 2 or below. And anemia was seen in 27.3%, um, of which um, there was a 4.5% incidence of grade 3 anemia. So it's pretty similar to what we observed in the previous studies that there's no correlation between B7H3 expression as well as efficacy. So again, no good biomarker here to guide us on which are the subgroups of patients um, that could potentially benefit from this drug. So my thoughts on this study. I think small cell lung cancer has historically been a very challenging tumor type to treat. We really don't have very good um, agents. So since um, you know the Empower um, as well as um, the Caspian studies, where the addition of immunotherapy to chemotherapy really did um, give us a big step forward in terms of improving treatment outcomes compared to chemotherapy. Uh, I think most of us oncologists are also mindful that the gains in survival is still pretty modest right even with the addition of immunotherapy and a big question is after they progress on that what else do we have so i think it's very encouraging that in a previously treated population with a single agent we see or our uh, objective responses in more than half of the patients um, albeit this is a small cohort uh, but i would like to see you know um, in a bigger data set whether we see this consistently and if so i think this does provide another um treatment option, potentially good treatment option for our patients, uh, where we don't have that many treatment options, at least in the later line setting.
1: Yeah, I think these data are probably the most exciting out of all the ADC data we've seen here. Uh, the response rates are high. The sample size is pretty small, but clear activity and a, a big unmet need for us. You know, we didn't see any data yet, and I don't think that I don't know if it, it exists. But with some of the other ADCs, we are seeing CNS activity. Right, her three. DXD, we're seeing CNS activity. We see that sometimes with HER2-DXD. Do you think that might be true here because small cell has a a high tropism for brain metastases? I wonder if that might even be a, a reason why this drug is so important in this disease.
2: Yeah, so I do think that that is a great um, observation, you know, that um, increasingly, I think we're beginning to see the intracranial activity of a lot of these ADCs. And in some of the tumor types where there is a higher predilection for brain metastases, such as her tumor mutated lung cancer, and especially small cell lung cancer, you know, that might be a good rationale um, to use these types of drugs, um, perhaps even earlier on in the
0: disease. Alfredo, what are your thoughts about this study now that we continue to talk about ADCs, but this time in a small cell lung cancer?
3: Well, I totally agree that those data are encouraging and we're desperate to find a better treatment. In um, second line, you know, everybody wants to get rid of topotican and we're struggling to get rid of this drug. So we definitely need to do something about it. So I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be this ADC or another one. Uh, because we all know that when we have to go second lines,
0: more cellar cancer is uh, it's
3: really grim. So I'm hoping that situation will, will get better with you know, this drug, perhaps.
0: As we wrap out this highlight of the 2023 World Conference on Lung Cancer, Stephanie, anything else that you would like to highlight about the conference?
2: Yeah, I think what really stood out to me um, in this conference is the emphasis on patient-centered care. So this was highlighted um, in two studies. So first was MARS-2, um, that, you know, the study really actually did um, ask patients to be part of the decision-making process on what would be considered a meaningful magnitude of benefit. I thought that was really wonderful. And it's high time that we really put patients in the center when we design such large-scale clinical trials. Um, And the second point was that in the discussion session for too. I think, again, um, patients were put in the forefront when we were saying that we really need to take the patient's preferences and quality of life metrics into consideration and not just adopt a very paternalistic approach when we recommend treatments. So I, I really like that part about this year's well lung, and I do hope to see more of that in future.
1: Yeah, I agree. That inviting all the stakeholders to the table at an early stage was really a, uh, something we should be doing probably much earlier for, for all of these trials. Alfredo, anything else that caught your eye?
3: Yeah, definitely something else, and is the TNM um, classification has been changed. Now, I think this is a result of of the discussion we had with neoadjuvant and perioperative treatment. So it also affects the stage 3, but now we have, um, for the N2, we have... uh, N2A for single station, and N2B for multi-station, N2 involvement, and also for the metastatic setting where we have um, M1C that's going to be split in M1C1 if it's uh, just one organ that has the metastasis extratoracically or M1C2 if there are multi-organs that get affected by metastasis and it's extraterrestrial metastasis.
1: There's so much more to cover, but we are out of time. And so, I want to take a second to thank the this year's WCLC chairs, uh, Doctors Chi Lee, Doctor Fiona Hickey Johnson, and Doctor Pingley, and you know to thank the over 5,600 attendees who attended live and virtually. Uh, remember to those who did attend WCLC, CME credit can be claimed via the conference survey that'll be emailed to attendees upon the closing of the conference. Complete the survey at the end of that. There's a link to claim your CME credit.
0: Also, a reminder the videos of the presentations will be available in our online platform until the end of the year. As we close 2023 World Conference Along Cancer, it is my true honor to invite you, with my co chairs, Dr. Patel, Dr. Martin, and Dr. Moraes, to 2024 World Conference Along Cancer in San Diego, United States, September 7 to September 10, in which we will we'll collaborate, learn, have fun, and improve the care of all patients with thoracic malignancies.
1: Be sure to mark your calendar. Save those dates now. I want to thank our two guests today. Alfredo, thank you so much for joining us. Ah, uh,
3: Thank you for having me.
0: And Stephanie, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for the invitation. And thanks to everyone for listening. You can download new episodes of Lung Cancer Considered, and we hope you tune in the first and third Tuesday of every month to give us a listen. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.